0: several years ago, I saw a commercial on TV with a group of friends on top of a snowy mountain being picked up by a helicopter. And they climb into the helicopter and they begin to fly away. And as they're starting to take off, they look out the window and they see this man left behind on top of the mountain, frantically waving his arms, trying to get their attention. And uh, and the guy who's flying the helicopter somehow doesn't see this guy waving his arms. And so they, they yell, like, hey, hey, that, that dude down there, he's, he's trying to get your attention. And the, the guy flying the helicopter says, oh, no, 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 we, we don't need him, that's just the pilot. <laughs> and so they, they look at him sort of bewildered, like, wait, wait, you mean you're not the pilot? And he says, oh, no, I've never done this before, but I did stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night. <laughs> And the commercial ends with the, the pseudopilot going, whee, and it just cuts to the blackness. Now, may, maybe you remember that whole series of commercials, and, and maybe they predate you, and you, you don't remember all of them. But they had one with a surgeon in the operating room, and he's like, oh, I'm not a real surgeon. He kind of rips his mask off and just walks out. And there was another one around a nuclear power plant that was having a meltdown, and there was like a a security guy coming in to tell everybody what to do, and he had no training at all. He was just barking out orders randomly. There's a whole host of them, and maybe you want to look them up on YouTube this afternoon. Please wait at least, you know, an hour and a half before you do that. Uh, but, But the end feeling on every single ad was this. You're supposed to get this sick feeling in your gut because somebody has a key job and they're entrusted with responsibility, but they're not qualified. And everybody's looking at it, they're like, dude, you can't mess around with this stuff. Like, flying a helicopter is not for the rookies here. There's training you need. There's qualifications. Having the right qualifications is absolutely critical for each of these roles, and everybody knows it. That's why the commercials were were funny and had some traction. You, You might be asking what Holiday Inn Express commercials have to do with First Timothy chapter 3, and the answer is this, this passage gives qualifications for leadership in Christ's church, and these qualifications that are laid out here for pastors and deacons are absolutely critical. And so the, the big idea that I want to give you this morning from 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 13 is simply this, biblically qualified pastors and deacons are mission critical, biblically qualified pastors and deacons are mission critical. I mean, maybe I say that and you think, well, Justin, I know that it's important to have biblically qualified pastors and deacons, and it's good, we ought to pursue that, but is it actually mission critical? Is that overstating your case just a bit? Well, let, let's pause and consider that for a second. How does it work out for the life of the church and the proclamation of the gospel when pastors end up loving money, And embezzling it from the church. How does it work out when pastors decide they'd rather preach politics in soapboxes than open up God's word and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? How does it work out when pastors don't control their passions and run off with another woman, or worse, turn to abusive behaviors? You see, it doesn't take very long of thinking about this to recognize that biblically qualified pastors and deacons are mission critical. So what I want to do is help us to think about how we apply this passage, and usually application is maybe at the end or maybe throughout, but I want to front load the application this morning. Help us to think from the very beginning, how do I take this passage that maybe you think is for someone else to apply, maybe the pastors to apply, maybe the deacons to apply, and how does it apply to your life? What are you supposed to do with it? Let me give you a couple of ways. The first way that you should think about applying this passage is by considering current and future pastors and deacons and saying, do they measure up to these standards? God has given this passage to the church, so that we can see, do we have pastors and deacons that are biblically qualified? Now, Our desire is to be raising up more pastors and more deacons here. Our desire is to have more pastors to present for church affirmation soon. Now, that's one of the things we're striving towards, perhaps even you know, by the end of the, the, the year here, that we could have more shepherds coming along and serving. And so this is a, a command given to the church to consider these things. And you should think about the church that you're going to leave to your kids and to your grandkids and to your great-grandkids. Because when we get lazy in making sure that we have biblically qualified pastors and deacons, it hurts those who come after us worse than even it hurts us. So that's the first way you should think about it. But you should also think about applying this to your own life. These qualifications. You say, Justin, I'm not a pastor. I'm not going to be one. I'm not a deacon. Maybe I will. Maybe I won't be one. But as you read through these qualifications for both pastors and deacons, what you're going to find is a remarkably ordinary description of what it means to follow Jesus. Like, yes, pastors and deacons must fulfill these. But for most of the qualifications, these are things that every single Christian should be aspiring to. Every single one. And so you should read these like a mirror looking at your own wife, saying, do I measure up to that? Whether or not I aspire to that office? And then the third way, I want to speak real specifically to our men here. And I just want to ask you this, men, is God calling you to serve in leadership as a pastor in God's church? I think there's a lot of men in this room that God might be leading to serve as a pastor, perhaps here, perhaps at another church, maybe in a staff capacity, maybe in a lay capacity. And it says that if anyone desires to be an overseer, he desires a noble task, And so, men, I want to call on you to think actively about this. Is God leading you to invest your life in service to God's church as a pastor? And pray over that and think through. There's a lot of ways we can apply this to our lives. We want to think about the framework from the outset. And we've been away from 1 Timothy for a couple of weeks over fall break. So let me kind of do a quick review and gain our bearings on where we're at and then dive into this passage. Right, chapter one of 1 Timothy was basically this, disciples make disciples. They do intentional, spiritual good to help others follow Jesus. And when a church embraces that, that's called a culture of discipleship, where it's just normal that each of us are making disciples of others, pouring into their lives, as Casey just prayed a minute ago, asking difficult questions of one another, coming alongside one another, putting our arms around one another, bearing one another's burdens in love, seeking to follow Jesus. And chapter 2 of 1 Timothy basically is talking about how disciples move out on mission together, recognizing that Christianity isn't a solo sport, that God makes you a new person when you become a Christian and places you into a new people, the church. We saw it's very important that you join a church, commit to a church, and go out on mission together, not as just a free agent Christian, which isn't found in the Bible. So we looked at how we pray together as a body. I encourage you to come back next Sunday at 9 a.m. for our prayer meeting. It's a, a critical way that we move out on mission together, asking the Lord to do the work. And then right before fall break, the last sermon that we had, 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 15, we were looking at disciples embrace their roles, part one, and this is part two of that sermon. We saw that everyone's role is to embrace an attitude of humility, and then there were specific roles given to men and women in God's church. Now, I thought this was going to be a two-part sermon, and then as I got preparing for it, I realized we needed another week. So next week will actually be part three of this, and I hope that there's not a part four. Uh, But that's kind of what's happening. And today, what we intend to do is to focus on the qualifications for pastors and deacons And then next week, look more at their roles and how they function and especially how they interact with one another. What does it mean to have a a team of pastors or a plurality of elders? How does all of that work? And so we'll be more focused on that next week. The outline we want to use this morning is simply working through four questions from this passage, four questions about roles in Christ's church. The first question we want to ask is, what's most important? What's most important for these roles in Christ's church? And for both offices, both pastor and deacon, what we're going to see is character is more important than competency. Character is more important than competency. If you're taking notes, I want to encourage you right now to make a little tally chart. On the one side, I want you to write character. On the other side, I want you to write competency. As you're writing that down, we're going to look back at God's Word. And I'm going to go through these qualifications. And when I read a qualification that goes in the character column, you just put a tally there. And you go to competency, you put a tally over there. Let's read through them, and I will move quickly. Verse 2, above reproach, character. Husband of one wife, character. Sober-minded, character. Self-controlled, character. Respectable, character. Hospitable, character. Able to teach, competency. Not a drunkard, character. Not violent, but gentle character. Not quarrelsome character. Not a lover of money. Character manages household well with dignity. Probably one in each category there. That's partially character, partially competency. Verse six: Not a recent convert, so as to protect against pride. That's getting at character. A good reputation. Verse seven: With outsiders, character. Moving to deacons. Verse eight: Dignified character. Not double tongued character. Not addicted to much wine. Character holding the faith with a clear conscience. Conscience is character. Verse 10, tested and proven blameless character. Verse 11, not dignified, or dignified rather, not, not dignified, excuse me. Character, not a slanderer, character, sober minded, character, faithful character, husband of one wife, character, manages household well, but one in both. Now, I don't know how many tallies you have there on either side. I went fast enough that there's probably some divergence within who's in the cr- congregation. But the overwhelmingly massive emphasis is on character. You can't read this passage and miss that clear and obvious point. But in the American church, if you look at pastoral job listings, you're going to read a whole host of bullet points that are like visionary leader, catalytic communicator, effective manager, master's degree from an accredited university. Asterisk at the very, very bottom should also comply with 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. And often when it comes for selecting deacons from within, we sort of do the same thing. Well, who's got some spreadsheet knowledge that can help the finance team here? Who knows something about electricity? And they can come be the the deacon of grounds and facilities here. Who knows something about IT? They can come help us figure out why the Internet doesn't work. And it's real easy to look at competency there Oh, yeah, they should be in a line with 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13 for the deacons as well, but it's so easy to focus on competency over character. But when the Bible drives our thinking, we value character over competency. Now, this doesn't negate the need for competencies, far from it, but it rightly values character ahead of competency because it's a lot easier to gain skills on how to do things than it is to gain a humble heart that submits to God and to others. God knew that when he wrote his word. And for those pastors who are to guard and proclaim the gospel, to pursue sheep and lay down their lives for them, for those deacons that are called to humble service, character is absolutely essential. I mean, maybe you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian Or maybe you are a Christian and you've had some really serious hurt from within the church, from church leadership. I want you to recognize this is an incredibly important passage for you. And maybe you didn't think of that right away when Ross was reading it. But perhaps you've seen pastors or deacons who lacked character. Pastors or deacons who said one thing on Sunday but lived a different life during the week and you know they were frauds. They were bullies. They were abusers. Friends, I want want to look you in the eye here from this pulpit and say, I'm sorry. God is not okay with that. And this passage is given to say that is not to be tolerated in Christ's church. Perhaps these pastors or deacons you knew, maybe they had immense gifting. Boy, could they preach! They could make it sound real good on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. They had a lot of charisma. They could cast a vision that anybody would follow. But from your personal experience, you know they were really concerned with platforming their gifting and minimally concerned with developing their character. And God says, that's not how it's supposed to be in my church. And so if you've experienced that, I am so sorry I want you to know that pain is real and justified. that can come from bad leadership. I want you to know that when that happens, it's coming from a disregard from God's word, an abuse of God's word, not his word itself. And all throughout the scripture, or at least at many points, what we find is God actually tells us that there will be wolves coming in among the flock who have bad motives who don't look out for your good, who don't care for you. and He says they're going to come, and the answer that he gives is not to punt on the church because there are idiots who step into the church and are trying to leverage it, but rather to say, whole church, look out, it's your job to protect the church because the local church is God's chosen instrument to reach the nations. Let me show you a couple of those passages 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. Here's what it says. See it on the screen. Some will maintain the outward appearance of religion, but will have repudiated its power, so avoid people like these. Acts 20, verse 29. Paul is speaking to the elders, actually in Ephesus, where this letter, 1 Timothy, was written. And here's what Paul says. I know after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. I could give other examples, but you see, this is not a surprise to God when people try to disregard this passage and think it's going to go okay. God doesn't say, give up on the church. He says, no, work for the purity of the church because the local church is my chosen instrument to reach the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the very most important thing we could say from this entire passage is that for leadership in Christ's church, character is more important than competency. And it's everybody's job to work for that and to defend it. The second question, then, that we want to ask of this passage is, who exactly are the pastors? Verses 1 through 7 speak to that. I don't mean Justin Casey, Steve Lynn, Jared Scott in that way, but no, who's in this office of pastor being described here? Look back at verse 1 with me if you would. Here's what we read. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. What we'll read is there are two offices in the local church, that of pastor and of deacon, and Paul focuses first on the office of pastor. The term in 1 Timothy 3, 1 that he gives is the term overseer. There are several terms in the New Testament that describe the singular office of pastor. I think we have a little slide up here to help see this. There's the office of pastor, and then there's a couple of terms. So the first term is overseer. You see that in 1 Timothy 3, 1, also Titus 1, 5. Then shepherd or pastor, 1 Peter 5 and Acts 20. That, looking at point two there, shepherd is the verb, pastor is the noun, it's the same Greek word. Pastors do shepherding, shepherds are pastors, um, and so you'll see that translated a little bit differently. Sometimes that word also says care for the flock, shepherd the flock, pastor the flock, same Greek word underneath all of that. And then the third, uh, the third term sometimes given is that of an elder, that's First Peter 5.1, that's Acts 20.17, and I want to go ahead and actually read those passages so you can see the same verse using different words to refer to the same office. Titus 1.5, Paul writes to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Two different words, same office. 1 Peter 5 says it this way, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder, shepherd pastor of the flock of God, that's among you, exercising oversight as an overseer, not under compulsion, but willingly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Acts 20, verse 17, is where we start now from uh, Miletus. Uh, There we go, thank you. Uh, He, that being Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. When they came to him, he said to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care, that word care right there, that's pastor, shepherd, the church of God. So three words, pastor shepherd, elder, and overseer, all referring to the single office of what we call pastors here at Parkside. Some churches will call them elders, But you see why different words, it's the same office being referred to there. And these men's job is to do three things, to lead the flock, feed the flock, and intercede for the flock. Lead, feed, intercede. First off, leading them to Jesus, but also in vision and direction, and how are we going to carry out the Great Commission as a church? To feed the church the Bible with a rich feast from God's word, week in, week out, not talking about our own hobbies and not our own soapboxes, but to say, thus saith the Lord, here's what his word says. And to pray fervently for the flock. Part of our pastor meetings, when we gather about 40-ish minutes, 45 minutes, is given to praying for the members of Parkside Bible Church by name working through how can we intercede together for the flock of God. And we'll say more about the function of this role next week, but today we're focused mostly on the qualifications for this role. I said this before, I'll say it again. What you'll find are remarkably ordinary qualifications, examples of faithful, humble Christianity. Let's look at verse 2 and read to verse 7 together. So we'll read about six verses. How will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. The description we get then is of normal, faithful Christians who are following Jesus, love his church, and have a desire to lead. You don't read here of super saints who never sin, but rather as of those who are examples of what it means to be a faithful Christian following Jesus. Must these people be exquisite communicators? No. Able to teach? Yes. Unbelievable visionaries? No. Able to effectively manage their household and therefore God's church? Yes. Yes. And the very first qualification that verse 1 gives is that this person, man, must desire to serve in this way. He must desire to lead God's church. There's no mention of a a mystical call, an out-of-body experience. No liver shiver. No handwriting in the sky. There's no, do you desire this office? And if so, that's a noble task. Fact of the matter is there were times in my adult life I didn't desire to be a pastor started out as a teacher and slowly God began to work in my heart giving me a desire to lead his church I took that desire to my pastors and asked them about it and we prayed about it together and over a period of a couple of years God caused that desire in my heart to grow it's similar to me of what Paul writes in second Timothy 1 to Timothy and says fan into flame the gift of God So all of us should be seeking the character growth that's described here in 1 Timothy 3. And we should be aggressive and intentional in pursuing it. Not sitting around waiting for somebody else to kind of get moving on our spiritual growth. Like, no, I should be pursuing this. But we should also be asking, if you're a man in the room, is God leading me, giving me a desire to lead his church as a pastor? Maybe you've never thought quite about it in that way. But let me, let me help you think about it maybe a, a bit differently. If you have kids, you're going to want them to have good coaches. You're going to want them to have good music teachers. You're going to want them to have good academic tutors. And if you're able to do it yourself, it would make sense for you to do that. Well, do you love God and his church and the gospel? Why would you not at least pray about the desire to lead in that way? There's other things in your life you care about, and you would want to serve in that way, and God may not give you the desire, and you're not a second-hand Christian if you don't desire to do that, but we should at least be considering it. We need to recognize that those who serve as pastors come with a higher standard on their life, and there are eternal judgments to be placed on them, Hebrews 13, if they don't live up to the standard that God has laid out. So it's a weighty role, but it's a noble role. Therefore, to be called as a pastor, we might say, is to have an internal desire that's also externally confirmed by that local church. Merely desiring on yourself is not sufficient. It's like, God's called me to this. Well, has anyone externally in your local church confirmed that? Because if they haven't, God hasn't called you to be a pastor. Very simple. Beyond desire, we get into the character qualifications. And there's an umbrella term that's given. It's called above reproach. And that's saying, here's the big thing for pastors. They need to be above reproach. And the rest of the descriptors fall under that, and they describe what it means to be above reproach. It comes to the first, and it says, the husband of one wife. Immediately raising the question, are single men able to serve as pastors? I believe the answer actually is yes, that single men may serve as pastors. That may not be what it looks like as you're first reading that, Here's why I have that conviction. The Greek word underneath that is a one-woman man. The word husband is actually not in the original Greek, it's just a man, a one-woman man. So it's referring more to your mar- or sorry, more to your sexual behavior and your moral behavior, and less to your marital status. And we might say, if only married men could serve as pastors, then neither the Apostle Paul nor the Lord Jesus Christ himself would be qualified to serve as a pastor. As we read through the rest of the character qualifications, we see basically there are men of clear thinking conviction and clear-hearted compassion. They love God, they love others, and they love the truth. 2 Timothy 2 puts this compassion and conviction side by side. You see it up on the screen. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. These are men who live by the Spirit, and they control their desires They're not driven by money, or jealousy, or rage, or sex, or food, or drink, but rather driven by love for the Lord, love for others, and love for the gospel. They're respected in their community, and they're hospitable. They welcome others into their lives, and sometimes even into their homes. They are an example to the flock. Here's what it looks like to follow Jesus— this is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 would write, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Christ is the chief shepherd, all the rest are under-shepherds. This isn't Justin's church, this is Jesus' church that has six under-shepherds here. And we're seeking to imitate Christ, saying, Imitate me as I imitate him. Right after Christmas, we'll come to 1 Timothy 4:12. We'll take a little break over Advent. And we'll see Paul writing this. He says this, Let no one despise you, Timothy, for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. In other words, Paul says, Timothy, age isn't the issue here. Is this brother setting an example to be followed? And if so, then you should affirm his gifting and encourage him. You should fan into flame that gift of God. And with the character expectations set, Paul moves then to at least one competency and and maybe a second. The first one he says, is this brother able to teach? Simply stated, you can ask, do people grow when they sit under his teaching? It might be a small group of six to eight people. It might be a big group of six to 800 people. There's different skills involved in each of those, but do people grow when they sit under his teaching? Can he rightly handle the word of truth to quote 2 Timothy 2:15? Look, this doesn't mean that he has to be John Piper or Tim Keller, but it is a requirement that he be able to teach. That he can open God's word and explain it clearly and apply it clearly. And then the second competency, perhaps, is that he manages household well. That word manage has two ideas. It means to supervise and to nurture. That's why we say character and competency are bound up in that. In other words, the trial ground is at home. If you do well, then you can lead in God's church, be faithful in small things, and you can be faithful in larger things. Is it essential that pastors have children? No, it's not. It's assumed that children are being pursued as a good gift. But on this side of Adam and Eve, this side of the fall, that may not be possible, even though children are being pursued and desired. And like I said before, if we make the demand of children before someone's qualified to be a pastor, then you've got the Apostle Paul and the Lord Jesus who would not be qualified to be pastors either. Now, this requirement of managing his household well also shows us something else. It reaffirms that the office of pastor is reserved for spiritually qualified men because men are called to lead at home. And sadly, this doesn't always happen. And sometimes ladies have to lead at home because the men aren't. But that doesn't change the fact that the men are called to lead at home. And if they lead well at home, then they're qualified to lead in God's church. And Paul wraps up this section of Scripture with two warnings. This is verses 6 and 7. He says, look, it shouldn't be a new believer because he could become puffed up with pride and this person should be well thought of by outsiders lest he fall into a snare and a disgrace of the devil. Which is interesting that Paul says that because Satan's strategy through the years hasn't changed very much. I want to take down pastors with internal pride or by public disgrace being brought to the church. Satan doesn't have many plays he runs, does he? He's just really good at running the ones he does. Let's puff people up with pride. So they think, oh, it's my plans that are bringing the fruit here. No, friends, it's not my plans. It's not my preaching. It's the Holy Spirit of God that's bringing fruit. And so some plant, some water, some harvest, but God's the one who gives the increase. we got to keep that clearly in view. If we sum up this whole thing on pastors, we'd simply say this. Pastors are faithful men who are following Jesus. They're able to teach. They have a desire to lead God's church, and they've been affirmed by the church. That's who the pastors are. That brings us then to our third question. Who are the deacons? Who are they? Verses 8 through 13, I invite you back to God's word again. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Who are the deacons? They are servants. The Greek word deacon simply means servant. And sometimes in the New Testament, it refers to this office of deacon. But most of the time, that word is just a general term for those who serve. In fact, Jesus was called a servant and called himself a servant. Same word, deacon. So Mark 10, 45, passage perhaps you're familiar with, says, For even the Son of Man came not to serve, but to be served, but to serve. He came not to be deaconed, but to Deacon, general sense of serving, that's the the main use of this word. But there is an office of deacon, of chief servants in the church. Or as Acts 6 would say, those who are called to wait on tables. And the idea is as the, the deacons serve and meet tangible needs, it allows the pastors to focus on the ministry of the word and on prayer. And the role of deacon is an absolutely critical role because when tangible needs are not met, it threatens the unity of the church because people feel they're being overlooked. These real concerns aren't being met, and a fractured church will never be effective in taking the gospel to their community or to the ends of the earth. It simply won't happen. Here at Parkside, how we talk about deacons is we say, yes, they lead in serving, but their job is also to mobilize additional servants, not just to do more themselves, but to facilitate other servants. So we say that deacons are servants, and shock absorbers. They serve and promote unity. And when the church hits a pothole or something comes up, deacons' role, one of them, is to help preserve unity. Throughout history, what we've seen from uh, the church is they oscillate between too big of a view of deacons and too low of a view of deacons. Too big of a view, we say, well, deacons are actually supposed to run the church. They're the trustees. They're the board of directors. We vet everything through, through them. And too low of a view, we simply say, well, just go, you know, clog the toilets, mow the grass, go do menial tasks, leave us, go, go do that stuff. Yet there's very real spiritual concern and need that unity be preserved. And that's why there's character requirements for deacons. Let me tell you a quick story on this. In 1940, Nazi Germany overtook the Netherlands, and the Nazis started loading up the pastors and carrying them off. The unity of the church is threatened. The mission of the church is threatened. The deacons had been serving well in the Netherlands. They band together and they begin to meet the needs of the refugees. They're serving those who are suffering from political oppression. And the church stays together. The church continues its mission because the deacons have been serving and fulfilling their role. And Nazi Germany actually issues an edict in 1940 to make the office of deacon illegal. So lest we think that deacons aren't that important because they don't run the church, they were important enough that Hitler thought they should have been made illegal. They have a critical role. Yes, they don't run the church. They're not the board of directors. But a church without healthy, functioning, serving deacons is absolutely impoverished. And a church with them serving well possesses untold riches. And here at Parks, I'm so thankful for the work of our deacons in a whole host of fields: in hospitality, in missions, in finances, in technology, in buildings and grounds and facilities and widow care. And I just could go on and on and on. Our deacons do a remarkable job, and I'm so grateful for them. Their qualifications must, like much like pastors, focus on character. It says they're to be dignified and not double tongued. I think of the opposite of that, that basically sounds like a gossip. Who wants the news and to inflame the business of the church instead of to promote unity? It says they're not supposed to be addicted to much wine or or to be greedy like pastors. They are not to be ruled by their passions. They're to be firm in their faith, clear in their conscience. And it says when they serve well, when they serve well, their feet are established and their faith grows. So while the office of pastor is reserved for spiritually qualified men, the office of deacon is available to spiritually qualified men and women. And our desire as pastors is to see more men and more women serving as deacons. Sometimes it's a little bit controversial to say that women should serve as deacons. Different churches have done that differently. So I'll give a very brief explanation here. There's a longer article that I wrote that's in the back. I'd encourage you to pick it up if you have questions. We'll be glad to chat afterwards and have a conversation there. Five quick reasons I think that it's it's wise for ladies to serve as deacons. It's biblical, not not just wise. Uh, Number one, deacons are servants, not an authoritative board. And so 1 Timothy 2.12 says that women are not to exercise authority over the church. Well, deacons aren't exercising authority over the church. They're they're a serving group, serving office. Secondly, women are explicitly prohibited from the office of pastor, but there's never an explicit prohibition from the office of deacon. Third, 1 Timothy 3.11, I believe, refers to female deacons, not wives of deacons. If you're reading 1 Timothy 3.11, maybe that's a little bit confusing, and in that article there's a longer explanation of why I think that. Fourth, we have the record of a female deacon in Romans 16. Seems to be a biblical precedent for this. And fifth and finally, this is the least significant of them, but I think still important to recognize. Female deacons have been common throughout church history in conservative churches, going back to the early church, through theologians like John Calvin and his church, through Charles Spurgeon in London, and in the present day, guys like John MacArthur and John Piper and Mark Dever that are conservative, Bible-believing pastors uh, where there are deacons serving in their churches. But regardless of what your position on female deacons is, it's clear that deacons are servants who meet the tangible needs of the church. They preserve unity. They help pastors focus on the ministry of the word and prayer. That's who the deacons are. Brings us to our fourth and final question. How do these roles reflect the gospel? So we've answered what's most important, character over competency. We've looked at the pastors. We've looked at the deacons. But how do these roles specifically reflect the gospel? How does that happen? I haven't said a whole lot about the gospel yet this morning, so let me pause on that for a second. Here's here's what the gospel is. The gospel is that God in love comes near to sinners. He sent his son Jesus to come close to offer forgiveness because Jesus paid for your sin on the cross. That means that your sin doesn't push him away. In fact, he comes near because you are a sinner. Romans 5.8 says this, but God demonstrates his love towards us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God comes close to sinners. And deep in our heart, What screams out to us is that when I sin, I'm pushing God away. When I'm having those thoughts, when I'm saying those words, when I'm doing those actions, when I'm recognizing those motivations, God is being given the Heisman, per se, to use a football analogy. I'm pushing him away. And the gospel says, no, God comes near to sinners. God comes near in love to redeem And the question is, how as a church do we come to believe the truth that God comes near to sinners instead of listening to our own heart that says, my sin pushes God away? How does that happen? Here's how. It's when pastors faithfully open up the truth of God's word, and they preach the parable of the lost sheep, that the shepherd leaves the 99 in search of the one who's been wandering. And you realize you're wondering and Jesus is pursuing you, chasing you down saying, come back. It's when pastors faithfully open God's word and they preach the parable of the prodigal son that the father is running to the son, glad to see him, throwing his arms around him, throwing a party for him because he loves sinners. And when pastors themselves not only preach these things but live these things out, when they go and pursue lost sheep, The under-shepherds give a tangible demonstration of what the chief shepherd did. He said, man, if an under-shepherd would pursue me like that, maybe it's true that the chief shepherd actually is pursuing me like that. Maybe the Lamb of God really did lay down his life for me and is not mad and angry at me, but recognizing if I'll come and repent of my sin, place my faith in him, that I can be forgiven as well. And when deacons go forth serving the needs of those who are hurting, it gives skin and flesh and blood and touchability to how Jesus serves us and says maybe this actually can be true. And and think even more broadly than our church. How does this reflect the gospel? When we have men serving as pastors, men and women serving as deacons, this church will be healthy. It will be fed. It will not be a hungry church spiritually. It'll grow spiritually. You'll grow in your faith and you'll be growing in those you reach. And healthy churches not only grow, but they multiply and they reproduce and they send some of those pastors out and they send some of those deacons out. And they send them to areas where there aren't as many churches, where they need good churches. And just imagine the gratitude on those brothers and those sisters' faces where they say, there didn't used to be a church here. I had to drive 50 minutes to find one. I couldn't invite my friends to church. Thank you for coming and starting a church here. We've needed this so badly. And you can say to them, yes, there are brothers and sisters faithfully serving at my church. The home base is strong, so we can send more out for a gospel outpost to be established out in Putnam County or out in Western Germany, wherever it may be. And we're now here, and we're going to turn this city upside down. We're going to turn this county upside down. We're going to turn this country upside down with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's when you embrace your role that the gospel is reflected both here and as we are sent out. It's been said that everything rises and falls on leadership. I think that's true. And so when the church leadership rises on the strength of the gospel, that church will do the same thing. And when that church leadership falls in humility on Jesus, saying, Jesus, you're the chief shepherd. It's not my church. It's your church. That church will do the same thing biblically qualified pastors and deacons. Friends, they are mission critical. Let's pursue them together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your church. And we recognize it is your church. It is not our church. And we recognize that your church is your chosen instrument for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. That in your church, your message would be proclaimed and embodied. That there would be ministry of word and of deed. So we ask this morning, Lord, that you would help us to honor and follow your word. That those who serve as pastors and deacons would do so humbly and faithfully and lead as you have called them to lead. Lord, we ask for every single person in the room they would reflect and see, where does my life not match up with the example of faithful Christianity? Or even if they are a Christian. Lord, we confess that you are the great shepherd. You came and pursued us. You laid down your life. You left the 99 for the one. And we ask that you would help us to firmly fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before you endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. May we fix our eyes on you. And may you carry us forward to do your will. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.